Okay, well, good evening, everyone. Sorry, it's always the technology throws curves at us. Well, welcome, but to 2023, welcome back. It's good to see everybody. Hope you survived, uh, let's see, what we had since we gone, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, New Year, whatever you celebrated, we're just, we're glad you're back. And um, hope you've had a good start to the new year for sure. And we're back in our study with church denominations, and we've got some um, uh, three to cover tonight. Actually, once we get there, we've got a little bit of uh, catching up to do with some things, but uh, glad you're here tonight. And ready, everybody ready for 2023, right? All the excitement that goes with the new year. Yeah, that's it. So I'm um, looking forward to good things. I'm thankful for a great service this morning and uh, some exciting news that we're uh, seeking the Lord's wisdom about. So help us pray as we pray for that. Um, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about baptism. Sounds like an odd part of this discussion, but I'll show you how it fits in and why it's important. And we're going to mention some of the religious wars of the time. I'll sort of re-catch catch us back up a little bit on some of that. And the new sects of Christian groups that come off of this, of which we are familiar with them in name anyway, even today, and where they come from. And that's going to be the Mennonites, the Amish, and the Brethren churches, right? We've all heard of those groups for the most part. And we're going to look a little bit at some of their history and, um, and how they kind of fit together in this big picture of stuff. So uh, why don't we pray? We'll try to cover... Um, some things here pretty quick as we start, because I want to review a little bit with you, and uh, then we'll catch up. Father, thank you for our time today. I pray you'll bless our, our, our study as we continue and learning about uh, different parts of our history as Christians, especially as it impacts our nation and our faith. I pray that you'll uh, bless the evening for all the Bible study groups that are meeting right now and getting back in the routine for this year. I pray that you'll bless this year for our church and for our families and for us individually as we seek to serve you. May it be a good year of growth and a good year of service. And may you be honored through what we accomplish as we exercise our, our, um, uh, our faith through the biblical principles that uh, we're taught. And I pray that you'll guide and direct our evening for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to mention real quick, i got my hand here because I'll get started and forget it. I've mentioned to y'all more than once um, about this book called God's Double Agent. And uh, it's, uh, it's a tremendous story of a guy named Bob Fu and how he came to Christ in China and what he's done as a Christian, the persecution he endured and the challenges it meant for him. And uh, it's just absolutely one of my favorite books. And uh, uh, Jerry Whitley was kind enough to bring me a copy because she has read through it. So she's offering it for anybody else that would want to read it and uh, in, it, be challenged, and there's some int intense moments in this story for sure. And uh, so uh, I'm going to leave it up here, and um, if you want to come talk about it or get it after service, you can read it, and then when you finish, I'll let you take it back to Jerry. And, uh, but it's a great story. Bob Fu is still alive and still serving today in an organization called China Aid, in which he tries to help the Christians in China, even to the point of helping them escape. That's where some of the some of the intrigue, I mean, it sort of reads like a, a Mission Impossible story at times. They're trying to do this and get away from the, the communist, and uh, it's quite a story for sure. And so I would encourage you to uh, take a look at that. It is available, I'll tell you too, if you're interested in the story but don't want to read the book, it is available on Audible. If you're familiar with Audible and the audio books um, that they have, it's one of theirs. And uh, you can enjoy it that way also. 
and actually hear a guy with a bit of a Chinese accent read it. So it sort of adds a little authenticity to it, right, in the way that it goes. So that'll be up here. If you're interested in it, let me know after, uh, after we're done here. Well, let's catch back up a little bit. Remember, we started way back, uh, back in November, I guess it was, maybe October now, um, talking about church history. And we, you know, we open our Bibles and we read the great accounts of the Gospels of Christ and the disciples and, and the, uh, uh, the events, of course, that, are, that draw our attention to, um, uh, to the arrest of Christ, to the persecution of Christ, to the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection and the ascension. And we go to the book of Acts and, and uh, you get to that great event in chapter 2 of the, of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We call it the birth of the church. And then we follow sort of somewhat, um, somewhat here and there, but we follow through the reading of the New Testament, the letters. The, this man named Paul who becomes an apostle and becomes a missionary to so many parts of the regions of the Middle East. And he takes the gospel on three distinct missionary journeys that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. And the churches begin to spread as the gospel is encountered. Small congregations and uh, he writes letters to them, right? That's what we read in the New Testament letters of Paul. Uh, the letter to the Galatians and the letter to the, uh, to the church in Philippi that we call Philippians. The letters to the church in Colossae, which we call Colossians. We read all those letters. Those are real people in real congregations trying to live out their faith. And then we follow the church after the times of the apostles and we do that through the means of history. Of course, the New Testament ends with the book of Revelation, and it's about the end of the first century. And so the gospel message has gone through that first generation of the apostles. There were men who learned from the apostles. They become what we call the church fathers. And when you read some of this, it's called the patristic period, um, meaning fathers. Um, and the church fathers period lasts um, for a couple of generations, usually through that second century. And, of course, by this time, Rome is starting to persecute the Christians. Had been doing it to the end of the first century. It began under Nero, uh, in usually around the mid-60s A.D. And the Christians are being persecuted. We've all seen some stories or some movies or uh, we've read something. If you might remember Ben-Hur, for example, is a story of some of that. And the church continues to grow as the gospel is spread. And the gospel, does, of course, doesn't just stay there in Jerusalem or in Israel, the land of Israel or Palestine, as you want to call it. It begins to spread and grow. And history tells us of the apostles who took their message to other places. Of course, the Bible tells us about the Apostle Paul taking the gospel into the land that we now know as Turkey, and then later into Macedonia and to Greece. And if you read in the book of Acts, his intent was um, even to go to Spain to take the gospel further west than it had ever gone before. Um, so succeeding generations pick that up, and the gospel continues to spread. You, you turn a few centuries very quickly to get to the late 300s, early 400s, and you start to see this organization of, the, of Christianity under, the, under a partnership with the Roman Empire. And from the 4th century onward, there's a union of church 
and government, it's often called church and state, the union of church and Roman government that created this power set up that gave the church in Rome this tremendous authority. And the words that came from the Bishop of Rome, as we would know the Pope, becomes authoritative to the church, even to the point that it supersedes the teaching of the Bible. As you turn another century or two over, the Roman Empire falls. You know, something that almost a thousand-year reign of the Roman Empire, but it fell, it collapsed of its own corruption and perversion. But the Roman church continued. The authority of the Roman church continued to be the most influential authority of Europe and other lands too nearby. But of, of that time and region for several centuries, you have this major influence. It's not the government, it's the papal seat of Rome. That's the period we call the Dark Ages. And in that, in that time, many, many Christians are, are caught up in this teaching of Rome, which becomes so many false doctrines. We looked at that very early in our study. The Roman Catholic Church today still is full of false doctrine. And, uh, and they still claim the authority to supersede the Bible. Now, what the Pope can say or what the bishop the uh, College of Cardinals can say, uh, as they meet, can supersede what the Bible teaches. And so that was continuing century after century after century until you get to the late 1300s. There were a few voices here and there, but they weren't very well accepted, obviously. And by the time you get to the late 1300s, a man we'll see here in just a moment named John Wycliffe, is going to be one of the first voices to really have a platform to raise opposition against what Rome is teaching. And his teaching, which was done in England at Oxford University, and his platform would allow him the opportunity to spread the word and to write. Didn't have printing press in that day and time, but eventually the word begins to spread. And others on the main continent of Europe begin to hear this voice. And, and there was always a, a bit of a, 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 a movement against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, but nobody had really expressed it well. And so voices on the continent begin to pick this up. And by the time you turn several decades and get to the early 1500s, this becomes a groundswell of opposition to what the church is teaching. And so let's pick up our time frame in 1500. It's hard for us to, you know, uh, scoop back in your mind 700 years, even, even back before iPhones, right? Um, so let's sort of describe what the world of Europe was like for the Christians of the time. Much of Europe, the Western Mediterranean regions and the British Isles, which the Roman Catholic Church comes to the British Isles in the um, uh, late 6th century, uh, they, are all, they are all Roman Catholic. England, the British Isles, all of Europe were, were highly Roman Catholic. To be a Christian of that time was pretty much to be a Roman Catholic because it's the only game in town. Countries are linked by their connection to the Roman Catholic Church and to the revised Roman Empire called the Holy Roman Empire, which began in 800 A.D., the dominant Bible for a thousand years had been the Latin Vulgate. And we looked at some, some pages of the Latin Vulgate. I had some out uh, 
during that time we were studying that. That was the only Bible. And you have to realize, too, this was a time when most people were illiterate. They did not read, could not read. And anytime they heard anything from the Scriptures, it was because a priest would read it. They had no opportunity to ever hold or see or certainly not even read a Bible uh, during this time. So imagine being a Christian. The only time you ever heard the Bible is when you came to church. That's so odd to us. We have such familiarity with the Scriptures. But this Bible had been around for a thousand years. And it was against the Roman church to translate it into any other language. Latin was the official language of the Roman Catholic Church. Still is today. And you, it was against the Roman Catholic law and against civil law in some places to translate it into other languages. But that was part of the voice that was being, um, that was rising against the Roman Catholic teaching. The printing press at the time was still the newest technology. The printing press comes around under um, Johann Gutenberg in the middle of the 1400s. So only about 50 years into that, the printing press is still the biggest technology, and they could now print books, and more importantly, they could print Bibles. And uh, the first Bibles that came off that Gutenberg printing press were Latin Vulgate. Latin, again, the language of the educated, which meant the church and the government officials. The age of European exploration, right? It's 1500. What happened in 1492? Columbus took a left turn and wound up in the Caribbean, right? So um, exploration from Europe is spreading across the, the New World. It's also the time of universities uh, begins to grow up in Europe. Uh, it starts you know, on the mainland there, um, and of course universities like Oxford would spring up from that, the University of Paris. University of Bologna, there were other places starting in the 1400s, 1300s, where universities were now starting to be a center of learning. And on the southeastern part of the European continent, heading into Asia Minor, northern Africa, this, there was a movement of the Muslims. And again, this is a topic, a big topic that we're going to uh, step over uh, through the Ottoman Empire. Osman I uh, consolidated lots of the Muslim tribes into one huge empire. And the Ottoman Empire, which had begun and was well in operation by 1500, would exist until World War I. The Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire is not, is not divided or conquered until the end of World War I when, because they had, they had identified themselves with Germany. And after World War I, the Ottoman Empire was disbanded. And uh, a lot of new boundaries, a lot of new countries were set up. Most of the Middle East today looks like it does because of the Balfour Accords that came out after World War I. And so, uh, 1500, boy, lots of things are happening. But again, the most important thing is the Roman Catholic Church just kind of is the dominant power. They influence um, the kings and queens, the monarchs of Europe. If you remember when Charlemagne becomes the king of the Holy Roman Empire on Christmas Day in 800 A.D., it is the Pope who crowns him. And that set a pattern in place, that it would be the church who would identify who the king or queen would be. And so it's hard for us to underestimate how influential the Roman Catholic Church was. And if you opposed the Roman Catholic Church, you were considered a heretic. And as was begun uh, by kings in the 13, 1400s, 
Uh, what do you do with heretics? They're burned at the stake. They're executed. So there weren't too many people volunteering out loud to oppose the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but nonetheless, there were lots of things happening. We had these things called the Reformations. I call it plural instead of singular because there were lots of voices. I mentioned earlier John Wycliffe, who in the um, late 1300s was from his pulpit as a professor at Oxford saying that there needed to be a Bible in the language that people could read. There needed to be um, a church that was more authentic in the way it lived out its faith. I mean, a lot of things we would agree with Wycliffe on. He wasn't perfect either. He had a few holes in some of his theology, but here we are a few hundred years later, we can say that. But we certainly admire and respect his stand. Wycliffe in England, uh, his teachings will find their way to, um, to uh, another um, voice in the Czech Republic, as we know it today, in Prague, uh, Jan Hus. Uh, Jan Hus will be executed at the stake for his stand against the Roman Catholics. And um, uh, his name is still re revered in Eastern Europe for his stand for the Bible. Martin Luther, who on October 31st, 1517, um, nails the 95 Thesis, the 95 things wrong with the teachings of the Roman Church related to indulgences. Uh, he nails it to the door, the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, that date is set uh, as an important date in this whole history. Luther himself was a Roman Catholic priest and a professor at the University of Wittenberg and a professor of theology. So he was a man with a platform, with a voice. And when he starts to oppose the Roman Catholic Church teachings, it got, caught people's attention, right? Luther's a whole other story. And from Luther, of course, we get the Lutheran denomination. Uh, meanwhile, down in Switzerland, Ulrich Zwingli, similarly, a Roman Catholic priest who sees the problems with the Roman Catholic teachings, begins to express his opposition to that. And so Switzerland now starts to be another place where there's voices. Uh, within the Roman Catholic Church, this man, Darius Erasmus, was a voice in the Roman Catholic Church who said, we've got to fix the things in the church. He, I keep him in the conversation because he was an influential voice who met with many of these reformers. But he, and he agreed, the Roman Catholic Church is broke. Its theology is wrong, its teaching is wrong, but he said, I want to fix it from inside. I'm not going to break away. We keep him in the conversation. I'll come back to him at a much later date, though, but we'll, we'll always include him. Uh, during this time, King Henry VIII in England um, establishes the Church of England to break away from the Church of Rome. If England is going to be a country, it needs to run its own church, was the argument he tried to make through his advisors and through his um, Bishop of Canterbury. The Church of England, through the... Um, um, through the act of parliament that established the monarch of England to be the head of the church in England. And that's the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church still today, you know, 700 years later, um, is head, is the head of the Church of England, the Episcopal Church, is the monarch of England. So today, Prince Charles, our King Charles, is the head of the Church of England. Under him, the Bishop of Canterbury. And, uh, of course, that Church of England comes to America as a colony and establishes the Episcopal churches as we know them today. But it's still Church of England. Um, William Tyndale is one of those voices in England who begins to translate the Bible into English. 
And uh, he's a man highly respected, one of my heroes of the faith for sure. William Tyndale was caught in Brussels while he was on the run. He had to escape England because King Henry had put a uh, most wanted bulletin out on him, wanted dead or alive, William Tyndale. He had to escape England, goes to Europe. He stays in hiding there, much of it in Germany. But he winds up in Brussels and is captured there and spends about a year and a half in prison before they take him out and burn him at the stake um, in the 1530s. Then um, we had John Knox to that. John Knox is the, um, the basically the, the founding of the Presbyterians is done under John Knox. Knox is also a priest in the Church of, uh, of Rome until he too begins to voice very strong opposition to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church as he tries to make Scotland not Catholic and to keep it moving in a Protestant direction. So John Knox. And then we, we sort of finished our study with uh, John Calvin. Calvin is French, but because of the opposition of the Roman Catholic Church to the non-Catholics in France, he escapes also uh, to Geneva, Switzerland and spends his life in his ministry there. It is from John Calvin and his writings and those who follow after him that you have a theology framework called Calvinism. And uh, we've talked a little bit about that as we talked about the Reformed churches, of which there's lots of varieties of Reformed churches. And we're not done with that conversation yet, but we'll come back and reference it a few times. And then you have all these reasons that sort of play into the Reformation. Why, why do these things happen over a period of a few decades? Well, number one, the Bible. People began to read the Bible. That's, that just sounds odd to us, but boy, during this time frame, to read the Bible, teach the Bible. It is, um, it is not uncommon. Matter of fact, I was reading something again this week of this time period. It was not uncommon for someone to be an ordained priest with the Roman Catholic Church who had never read the Bible. Because it wasn't about the Bible. It was about knowing the Roman Catholic doctrine and the way in which they did things and how, they author uh, how their authority was exercised. So the, the presence of the Bible, especially once it started being translated, and started to be read from public places like pulpits or university uh, gatherings at some of these universities that are cropping up. Uh, the Bible. Uh, a very corrupt Roman Catholic church. Even the Roman Catholics said it was corrupt. Uh, they were crooked in every which way, and they tried to hide behind the idea of a religion of the Catholics to do that. And really, what you find in this is, I say men because they were the ones whose voices were at least the most dominant of the time, the men who, com who were committed to a pure, biblical, historic faith. You know, once you read the Bible, it tells you what you need to know for your faith, right? I mean, we're Baptists for that very reason, because we want to follow what the Bible says, not what church doctrine, especially coming out of Rome, calls us to. And it's from those few things, to summarize some very quick points, that we get the five solas. I introduced those to you when we did the Reformation churches or the Reformed churches, the five solas, which means the onlys. Sola Scriptura, the Bible only, the Scripture alone. Sola Fide, through faith alone. Sola Gracias, these are Latin phrases, through grace alone. Um, sola... Uh, Christus, through Christ alone. And then the last one, solo Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone, the five solas of the Reformation. And those five statements we really don't have any opposition to. We're, we're glad to incorporate them into our thinking, but there's other things beyond those five, but those are the five big things of the Reformation period. 
which will last for quite a while. One of the big theological, several big theological issues there, right? Especially beginning with the place of the Bible. Secondly, beginning with, uh, or secondly, uh, accounting the idea of grace and faith. You know, Luther's, Luther's preaching and ministry from, his, from the point of the Reformation was that you are saved by grace through faith. And that certainly is a place we would gladly lock arms with the teachings of. But there were other issues. There was disagreement among these men. How do you incorporate the Lord's Supper, for example? What does it mean? We looked a little bit at some of that. The Catholics have this teaching of transubstantiation, which says the, the wafer and the wine turn into the body and the blood of Christ. Physically and literally, the body and blood of Christ. When you consume it. Others said, no, that doesn't make sense. Some, some agreed with that. Luther, Luther tried to, to draw a similar comparison. Like I say, some of, these, some of these movements and some of these men held on to some of their Roman Catholic stuff, which is kind of odd to me, but again, I, I can't condemn them. I'm 700 years after them. I got a little bit of advantage on them. We all do because of that time frame. Uh, Luther and Zwingli did not agree how, the, how to interpret the Lord's Supper. And that was a big issue that wrestled these men wrestled with in their teachings and in their preachings and their theology for, for decades. And uh, groups divided over. You know, they united on lots of things, but, but they didn't agree on some things. It would be a generation or so after them that would wrestle with another issue that to us is very plain and common sense, and that is the issue of baptism. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, this was not an issue to the early reformers. It became an issue to the generation after them because once they started looking at the teachings of the churches and the teachings of these movements, they began to say, here's how we're going to practice it. Well, of course, the Roman Catholic Church practiced and required infant baptism. It was an expectation. If you're a Catholic Christian family, that you would bring that child to, to have baptism done. And uh, those first reformers continued that practice. They were fine with it. They had been baptized as infants. And they taught in their theology to baptize infants. Sounds odd to us, doesn't it? But to them, and to, continues today, the Roman Catholics still do that. And some other Protestant denominations will still do that. A lot of the Reformed churches will still follow infant baptism. Of course, it sounds odd to us because we would line up more with the second generation Reformers who, when they started to encounter the issue of baptism, saw it very differently. They saw it as after a public confession of your faith. It sounds very common to us. Baptism should be done after someone publicly confesses Christ. It should be done to someone who is conscious of their sin and of their status before God to accept Christ as Savior, which wouldn't be an infant. And then it was done in the means of submersion, as we think of it, right? Baptist all over that. Even though there's no such thing as Baptist, you hear that concept. Well, so let's take a quick look maybe at some of the history of the baptism that was brought up through these generations. Issue number one, who gets baptized? The technical term for this is called pedo-baptism. It means child baptism or infant baptism. Here's a quote regarding that. We baptize infants because they are covenant children. And where do they get that imagery from or that idea from? They get it from the Old Testament. 
Because what was the covenant, how was the covenant exercised to children in the Old Testament? Circumcision, right? So when a child was born in the Jewish covenant, a male, obviously, when the male was born, the sign of the covenant was through the act of circumcision. Circumcision to the Jewish covenant was not an act of health or a physical it was a spiritual act as much as anything. It was a recognition this child is born to a Jewish family and is therefore under the covenant of God, of Yahweh God, and we will raise him and train this child to be in that, in that, um, in that teaching. So that's where the imagery gets picked up. So they take it to the New Testament and say baptism is similar. A Christian family takes their infant to church and the priest will baptize them in a way to recognize that we are a Christian family, we are claiming this child for Christ, and we are baptizing them as, a, uh, as an element of that training up to be a Christian. And it is still, again, practiced, obviously, by the Roman Catholics and some other things, too. So the logic is there is taken from the Old Testament um, related to circumcision. Now, issue number two is how to baptize or the mode of baptism. Where's the issues here that was wrestled with in the 1500s? Some people say you don't need to be baptized. These are the Catabaptists. You know, there are still, there are two Christian denominations that do not baptize. Extra credit if you know either one of them. Oh, come on. One's the Quakers. They will not baptize. We'll talk about the Quakers later. They've got some other issues too, but that's one. Quakers do not baptize, and the Salvation Army does not baptize. So it's interesting, isn't it? There are some who, who will teach. Why baptize? They, how do they frame that? They see baptism as a spiritual, not a physical event. We would see it as a physical event that represents a spiritual event. And they would say, now, there's no need for the physical. If God has saved you, you're baptized in your heart. Okay? Now, again, I'm not going to chase down all those things. Some people believe you practice baptism by effusion. This is simply pouring. And sometimes you'll see this represented. And it is done in some countries and in lots of Christian communities where a person will come before the, the pastor, the priest. They'll in the, they may even be in, the likelihood is they'll be in water, but not deep water. And they'll kneel down, and the priest will take a bucket, a bucket, a bowl, and pour it over them and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's baptism by effusion. This is also the type of baptism that is done to children. How do you baptize an infant? You don't put them in the water. They don't know to hold their breath. So you simply pour some water over their head to do that. Some people believe in baptism by aspersion. The technical term for that is simply sprinkling. Where do they get the idea of sprinkling from? Again, it's an Old Testament, right? What did the priest do with the blood of the lamb? Sprinkle the blood on the altar. And so they think as long as some water has been applied, that's okay. That's, it's just a symbol anyway, or it doesn't matter how much water, we'll do it that way. So some people, so there are some you know, groups that will still are fine with that. The Eastern Orthodox do something interesting. They will baptize by immersion, but they triple baptize you. Okay? So the, the priest will stand there with the person. I baptize you in the name of the Father. I baptize you in the name of the Son. You see where it goes? That's why it's a triple baptism. And so they will do it that way. 
So uh, again, lots of interesting concepts there about how to baptize. Issue number three, when to baptize. When do you baptize someone? Well, of course, for some, the question that falls there is, can you baptize infants, children, or, or teens? Do, in other words, do you put an age limit on it? You have to be a certain age. I will tell you, there are Baptist churches. There are Baptist churches who are Reformed, and they have no problem baptizing an infant by aspersion. Um, and so there are some Baptists who will do that. Certainly the Catholic Church does it. The Lutherans will still baptize infants. Um, uh, again, part of their Reformed Presbyterians, I believe, will still baptize infants. So there's several main, you know, we call them mainline evangelical denominations that still may do that. Do you baptize children? And if so, how? Again, that's another question. But if you baptize children, what do they have to do before they're baptized? Now, of course, as Baptist churches, as, as our practice is, as a child realizes and recognizes their position before God and, and, and claim the gift of salvation by grace through faith, and they ask God to be their Savior, we believe they can be. So how many of you here were, came to Christ as a child, were baptized as a child? Any takers? Okay, good number of us. And I would be in that number. I was, came to Christ as a nine-year-old and baptized as a nine-year-old. Some people say, no, you need to be at least a teen. You may, get, you may make your profession when you're a child, but we don't believe a child is able to fully comprehend all that that means. And their logic is this. We think it's too easy for a child just to want to do it. My friend did it. I want to be baptized. Mom and dad said they were baptized when they were young. I want to be baptized just like they were. You know, they, they make the argument that a child is just incapable of really fully understanding the depth of their salvation and what it means to be baptized, the importance of it. And so they say a child may come to faith in Christ, but we're not going to baptize them until they're 16, 18, whatever it is, just because we want to make sure that they fully understand. Some will do that. So again, you time it related to age. Do you, how quickly after a public confession... Whether you know it or not, in, the, in, in much of recent American Christian evangelicalism, there's been a movement uh, of many churches to do what are called instantaneous baptisms. So in an instantaneous baptism setting, preacher preaches. Anyone here like to, you know, as we've heard our pastor do and, and others from our pulpit, anyone here today see their need for Christ? Anyone here want to ask Christ to be your Savior? Is that true? Would you raise your hand? Raise your hand. Okay, all of you who raise your hand, you've confessed Christ. We want you to come up now and be baptized. Right? And so they have some clothes they can change into, and everybody's hanging around. We're going to have a baptism service because they had three people today accepted Christ. There's, there's been quite a movement of that in some, uh, some of the Christian movements in America in the last 15, 20 years particularly. Do you do it that quick? What's their logic? They look back at Acts chapter 2. After Peter preached, 3,000 received Christ and what? Were baptized. The indication is the same day. So that's their platform that they want to have. So how soon? Do you, do you have to give a person time to display their regeneration, their new life in Christ, to make sure it's authentic and real? 
They're not just following a friend or following the trend. Following further instruction, maybe you take a class. Maybe you have to be a, a new Christian class. Some churches do that. And you fully understand. And once you've done that and you've, you know, as best you know how, able to confirm that, then maybe you're baptized then. Maybe you're reviewed. Maybe, maybe you take the class. You know, there are some churches who do this. I hey, hey, like this system. Someone comes and receives Christ. It's authentic. It's real. The church says to them, okay, in about a year, we're going to baptize you. Oh, okay, about a year? Yeah, well, we're going to wait, and we're going to watch you grow, and we're going to see you in the faith, and we want to confirm your profession, that it really is authentic. And by the way, as part of that year of waiting, as we're watching, we want you to take this class. It's a new Christian's class. It takes about three months to go through it, right? We're going to teach you principles in God's Word and how to live your new faith in Christ, and what does it mean to be a Christian? Then we're going to watch you a little more. And somewhere about 10 or 11 months down the road, we're going to have you do an interview with one of our pastors or maybe a couple of deacons or somebody just to confirm. And once you go through those steps, then we have confidence that baptism is the right thing for you. Right? There are churches that do that in that type of system, very detailed. So you, you see very quickly what, what we all think is, well, baptism, how hard can that be? Boy, it, it becomes a lot of different directions, a lot of different facets to it in the way it's practiced. So again, I hope this is not, this part, I hope is not entirely new to you, and that is how you define baptism. It comes from the Greek word baptisma, which is the noun form. We're going to perform a baptism. Or it becomes the verb form baptizo, which is the action. You're going to baptize somebody. And this word in Greek means to plunge, to drown, to submerge, to sink. Even heard one, one explanation of this word. Somebody using this word would say, look at that ship over there. It's been baptized. They meant the ship sunk. Right? It went all the way to the bottom, completely submerged. So the word implies that submersion completely underwater, not a pouring, not a sprinkling. Immersion, therefore, is baptism by submersion. Now, what's funny, we'll, we'll talk about this a little later, uh, another 100 years in our timeline. It, was, it wasn't called baptism by many, especially in the English language. It was called dipping. Dipping. Think about today. It doesn't, it doesn't have quite the ring to it, but we could well be called gospel dipping church. Right? I mean, they, they called it dipping. I'm going to get dipped at church on Sunday. That's how they would use it in place of the word baptism. The immersion formula, again, some will follow one, one dip in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or three dips, one for each. Because this is an issue with some lots of ways it could be done, you know, what do you do with a person who was baptized as a child? They grew up in a Catholic home. They grew up in a Lutheran home. They grew up in a Presbyterian home. They grew up in a Methodist home. And they were baptized as a child, an infant even. And they had no remembrance of it, no record. I got a piece of paper since I was baptized when I was two months old. But they have no recollection or remembrance of it. What do you do with those individuals? Well, the common answer, and certainly will be the answer for us, is you let them make their public profession of faith and baptize them as an adult or as a, someone who's not an infant. Uh, and so it's called dual practice. There are some churches, including some Baptist churches, who will Let's say um, who will allow 
child or infant baptism, and they will rebaptize adults. So again, our church, our position is we will not perform infant baptisms. I don't think that's a shock to anybody here. But we perform baptism at the confession or the profession of faith given by an individual, even children. As we often see, we have children baptized here. And I can't speak for all of y'all, but I remember so distinctly being baptized. I could tell you which way I was standing, even as a nine-year-old, which way I was standing uh, and how I was facing so those are things that, again, churches have had to, over the years, over the centuries, really, sort out those details and find a place where they're at. But it's at least interesting to see. So we come across a new term. As you get into the 1500s, you come across a term called rebaptizers. And that term becomes Anabaptist, the rebaptizers. So if you got this movement of all these Catholics of Europe saying, we believe that salvation is by grace and through faith and not of works. But I was baptized as an infant. I have publicly put my faith in Christ. Now what happens? We're going to baptize you again, right? Just like we would do. And we have certainly had people here at our church baptized again. They were baptized or sprinkled or something. That's water poured on them as a child. And now we want to give them the way to do it, as we see in the Bible, the Baptist way. So the rebaptizers, the first term that comes to the discussion in the 1520s, 1530s, is the term rebaptizers. And this group became known as Anabaptist. The Anabaptist group, that's simply exactly what the word means. It means to rebaptize. Interesting enough, the, the Anabaptists become quite a movement in Europe in the 1520s and forward, following as part of the Reformation. There are also those in our camp, we would be this, again, another term you'll see in, as you read through this, called credo-baptism. We are a credo-baptist church. We believe in baptism once you make the profession. The creed there simply means to believe. Once you've expressed your belief and faith in Christ publicly, then you can be baptized. And so the term credo-baptism comes into this discussion also. And of course, we understand what baptism is almost by understanding what it's not, too. It's not a ritual or a ceremonial washing. Some people want to promote it that way. That's called lustration view of baptism. It's just a ceremony you go through. It is not a sacrament. The Catholics would teach that. It's a sacrament that infuses some type of grace from God on you because you went through this act. It's not necessary for salvation. There are some Christian denominations, even evangelical Christian denominations, which say you must be baptized in order to be saved. Right? And we would not affirm any of those positions. We don't believe it's a ceremony. We don't believe it's a sacrament. We don't believe it's a part of your salvation. It is simply a testimony to the public that you have been born again, and it symbolizes your life died to self, raised anew in Christ. And so baptism still gets a lot of discussion um, in, this, this, in this whole issue. So what do you have here? Uh, the biblical evidence strongly supports credo-baptism, confess with the Lord um, confess with your mouth the Lord thy God and thou shalt be saved. And then baptism is a testimony of that. Again, I'm not taking the time to chase down all the verses. We'd be here too long for that. 
Baptism is by immersion. What the word means is to put under water as an outward testimony of obedience, following a person's profession of faith. Again, to use the words of Jesus in John 3, born again. Uh, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. It's an act of obedience. As Christ was baptized, we are also, and the scriptures command us to be baptized. Testimony, it's an act of commitment to demonstrate to others you're now following Christ. Now, what happened through all this discussion? I mentioned the second generation of reformers. You got Luther and Knox and Zwingli, and you've got this great movement of things trying to reform the church. We've got to fix these, in, uh, these corrupted teachings. The second generation and following, you had what history will call the radical reformers. These were ones who really took all the extreme. That's why they're called radical. They took the extreme at the time. This was extreme. So starting uh, in the next decade after Luther, you get this radical movement within the Swiss Brethren Church and in the German church of the Anabaptist. Now, I know the term Anabaptist sounds a whole lot like Baptist. But again, the emphasis here is not a theological position. It is strictly referring only to baptism. There were individuals and communities and congregations who said, we believe you must be baptized after you get profession of faith in Christ. And the two primary groups were the groups in Switzerland and the groups in Germany. Again, that's the, the, were the home teaching of Luther in Germany and Zwingli in Switzerland and later Calvin would all come from. Uh, even though some of those groups, and these groups, the Anabaptists, were opposed by the Lutherans. They were opposed by the Reformed churches of Calvin. They were opposed. History tells us, I don't, I, I, I don't have it as part of our lesson, but history tells us there were people who were executed, executed, because somebody found out they were baptized a second time. Now think about that for a moment. I'll give you some examples here shortly, and then we'll close. We'll pick back up next week. Through this time, from look at the dates, from 15, mid-1520s, for 100 and what is that, 44 years, Europe will go through the religious wars. Think about that for a moment. How many generations is 144 years? Three, for sure. Four, maybe five generations. Can you imagine growing up in a place where all you knew was war? Why? Because I'm a Protestant and the Catholics want to kill me. So when I get a certain age, I join the army so that I, as a Protestant, can go kill Catholics. I mean, that's kind of the world of Europe for 144 years that way. We'll talk about those a little later and what ended them, the peace that ended them, so-called peace, and some of, the, some of the monstrosities that went through. And you get some glimpse of this, of this image here. The, uh, remember, um, remember Zwingli. Zwingli was killed by Catholics because there was a Catholic army coming to invade Switzerland. And Zwingli went out with the army to be a chaplain. And the Catholics demolished the Swiss Protestants and killed Zwingli in the process. So it was a terrible time. Let me talk about these three men and maybe a couple more real quickly and then we'll stop and catch up next week. These three men from the Church of Switzerland, the Swiss Christians, 
were initially companions of Zwingli. They were part of the reform movement of the Swiss. They were with him in Bible study. They heard him preach. And they, too, came to a point to oppose the Catholic doctrine. But as they, as, as young men, these were all men in their 20s at the time, as they began to read and understand the scriptures, they saw the issue with baptism. And they said, we, we, we cannot affirm infant baptism. And so they began to be the voices of those in Switzerland who said baptism should be for those who have given public confession of their faith, not just because they were born in a Christian family. But Zwingli and others of the Swiss church at the time would not, would not take such a stand. And so they, they saw the need of declaring these guys sort of as renegades to the church. They could not accept the infant baptism. And another thing they did not like, particularly, it was kind of secondary, but they did not like how the church and the government of Switzerland companioned together. They saw echoes of Rome in that. They didn't like that either, and neither would we, and obviously neither did our founding fathers. So let me tell you these three men right here particularly. Conrad Grable on the left was excommunicated from his church, kicked out of town by the civil authorities. He became a roaming preacher. And as a result of that, at age 28, he caught the plague, and with no one to take care of him, he died from the plague. Felix Mons was arrested by the state government while he was preaching he was imprisoned in Zurich. In his, for his punishment, his form of execution was what was called the third baptism. He had been baptized as a child. He was baptized as an adult for his public profession of faith in Christ. And so there was one baptism the state said he hasn't done yet, and this was how they executed him. They drowned him. How did they do it? They took him out on a boat, stood him up, pulled his hands behind him, and then pulled his hands down below his legs. And then they ran a rod through the little connection that you have there. A man got on each side, and they just hoved him overboard, and he drowned. Look at his date. Man's drowned at age 29 for his faith. George Blue Rock, although it looks to us like Blau Rock, was a former monk. He was run out of Zurich and beaten because of his stand for baptism. He traveled and preached and, and taught as, did, as Grable had done, his companion. But he was tortured and eventually burned at the stake by the government for simply believing what? That you baptized by going fully underwater as a confessing Christian, not as an infant. He wrote just a few weeks prior to his death, quote, God holds a righteous judgment, and God, you I will praise. He just, it's in God's hands at this point, have no other recourse. He too would die as a young man at age 37. He finally captured in northern Italy. And um, so these are three men that you probably have never heard of. And they certainly took a stand for what we today have 
followed and practiced ourselves. One of those early Christians. And then one more slide. I'll show you these two men. The Ger- those are the Swiss. Again, I said there were some German uh, voices for the, 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 uh, the need of baptism and how to, in, how to interpret the sacraments of, of what they call the sacraments, what we call ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Hans Dink, um, he believed that the ordinance of baptism and Lord's Supper were only symbolic, as we would. Baptism, a sign of commitment, communion, a ceremony of remembrance. He was banished from his hometown of Nuremberg, Germany for his stance to be a wandering preacher. He too would die at age 27 from being exposed to the bubonic plague and because of his stance before the government, no one would take care of him. Hubmeyer lost his arguments in the public court and was jailed and tortured until he recanted. They tortured him until he said, okay, I believe believer's baptism is not right. And they released him for that. He, his recant, however, troubled him for the rest of his life. He just knew in his heart, he just gave in to the torture. And he wrote later, I may err, I am a man, but a heretic I cannot be. God, please pardon me for my weakness. He too ultimately died because of his faith and belief in baptism as you and I would see it. Which leads us to this man. Here's where we'll close. Menno Simons. And next week we'll pick up with Menno Simons, who is the father of a group we call the Mennonites. And we'll see how they took these Anabaptist beliefs and then live them out in what they have today. And, by, and next week we'll talk a little bit too about how the Antibaptist, the Anabaptist, influenced a group of Christians from England that would later become Baptist. So there's some connection there. But the Baptists do not grow out of the Anabaptist movement of Europe. But there's no doubt that the, the teaching of that generation influenced a group later to be called Baptist, of which we are today, right? So all that's going on. So we continue. And next week, we'll talk more in detail about the Mennonites and the Amish who come out of the Mennonites and the Brethren churches who come also in that line. And we'll sort of put those pieces together and talk about them even here in America and some of their beliefs. And and we've had some exposure to them already, uh, many of us in one way or another. Well, good deal. Let me remind you, uh, we'll be back here next week and and look at, start to look at the Mennonites. And uh, I think after the Mennonites, we're going to talk about the Methodists and the Wesleyans. So we've got several groups yet to go. And uh, looking forward to uh, getting that done as we go into into these next few, several weeks. Well, let's pray. And then uh, we'll go. Remind you about the book down here if you're interested too before we leave. Father, thank you for our time today. We are again reminded uh, to to say thank you for the, the men who faithfully stood for positions that we we hold today and hold uh, dearly as they did about this important issue of baptism. And uh, we realize that there were many who gave their life for that position. And as Christians were persecuted then, we're reminded too that there are Christians persecuted now. And we pray rather in, in a communist country, in a Muslim country, we pray that you will protect them, hedge them about, uh, give them relief, and give them freedom if it all If at all in your will, we just commit those names that are unknown to us and those faces unseen by us and pray for them and lift them up as we'd want some to pray for us. I pray that you'll bless our evening as we work our way home, our week ahead as we seek to serve you and honor you through our testimony in our lives. In Christ's name we pray.
Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great rest of the week.